we are um, just at the beginning of talking about what it takes to be in first mile Christianity so that we can even get to second mile Christianity. In the first trimester of this year, the sermons will be about what is necessary for us to do before we can even begin to talk about spiritual maturity. The first part of the first trimester had to do with theology. Accurate belief about who God is. Very, very important. The second part will be about the church. Who God calls out to be together to perform what they believe. Now, if you want a war analogy, you will have plenty of these uh, in the coming series on spiritual warfare. The accurate belief would be the air campaign. It would be um, the targeting of the other side. It would be the specific uh, strategy in which you formed the accurate picture of what goes on on the other side as well as what you have as far as armaments, and it would be the prayer that goes out to hit direct targets. The church, however, would be the ground war. And unfortunately, when we're talking about ground war and spiritual warfare, we're talking more Vietnam than we are Iraq. We're talking about guerrilla warfare. We're talking about hidden deceptions of Satan and so on and so forth. But I want to take a few Sundays and talk about what God had in mind when he called out the church. The first passage we read in Scripture about the church per se is in Matthew chapter 16, and I'm going to begin with verse 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered. Simon Peter was always the first one to answer. That's just the way he was wired. You know, There was never think time with Simon Peter. Sprung out with what he'd always hunched. Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Greek, it is Thou art the Messiah. So that there was no doubt who Jesus was. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar means son, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. It's the first time it's ever mentioned in Scripture. And the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I love the Old Testament, the, the King James. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I like that. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The first thing I want you to notice about this, this scripture is that it begins with theological questioning. The church has its um, invitation into people's lives by their theological questioning. It is wonderful that we are equipped with such a hunger 
for spiritual things in this world. For those of you who are in anthropology, you will know that there has never been a culture that we know about anywhere in history that has not questioned who God is theologically and that has not come up with some sort of a semblance of how the universe operated so that they could worship it or him or her, whatever it was, whatever their approximation of what God was, so that they could worship it. All of us ask theological questions. And so Jesus took the very normal questioning process that all of us have, not only in a culture as adults, but as kids. Your kids have theological questions. Half the people, pe- reason people come back to church when they do is because their kids are asking questions they can't answer. And they say, let's get these kids to church. I can't answer these. And by the way, I'm kind of frightened I don't know the answers myself. When my kids first got to Florida, um, Josh was in Lake Orienta, and I remember we got a drip, don't we? I, got, I remember Josh had on one side of him was, was a little Jewish girl, and on the other side was a little Jehovah's Witness. Was that right, Josh? And so they just talked about religion. Great. It's wonderful. It is wonderful live to, to live in a cosmopolitan area. I came from a wasp community. Everybody was white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, blah. It is wonderful to live in a community like Florida, where you have so many cultures. So Josh would come home talking. Well, what this girl, you know, this is what this girl said about Christ. You know, listen what this girl, what is it? And I loved it. And my kids have gone through that. Why do we believe what we believe? It's a wonderful questioning process. Now look what Jesus does with that. He says, so who do, say, who do men say that I am? Well, they come out with their approximations, which, by the way, aren't bad. Because all of them are pointing to the Messiah. All of them surround the concept of the Messiah. So they're coming close. Some say John the Baptist reincarnated. Some, some say um, um, Elijah. Some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Um, and Jesus stops right there and says, But who do you say that I am? There's the question. There is the question of all the centuries. And if you've never heard him ask you that personally, he's asking you that personally. I don't care what everybody else's opinion of me is. Who do you say that I am? That's where you live. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter was the first to answer, and he said, Well, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Bingo. He didn't really say that. But that's what we'd say today. That's what we'd say today. We'd say, Bingo, Zappo, you got it. That's it. Now, I want you to see the difference. The best we can do without direct revelation from God are approximations of who God is. God has given us wonderful minds to think with, and I hope that we never waste them. Most of us do waste a good part of what God's given us intellectually. But there's only so far that reason can go, and there is not a way that you can receive who God really is until you say, I don't think my reason can comprehend who God is. Many people don't realize that limitation. They're like the little girl who on a rainy day got out her crayons and sat down with a piece of paper and her mother said, what are you doing? She said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And her mother said, well, honey, nobody knows what God looks like. She said, they will when I get done. 
had no comprehension of the limitations of her own abilities. And most people, unfortunately, believe that they can come to know who God is by their own reasoning ability. Jesus saw it different. When there was a man who could say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Messiah, there was revelation. There was a word of knowledge that's supernatural directly from God. And then what happened? Then he said, And I also say to you, this is verse 18, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Now I want to talk to you a little while here about that particular passage. There is much debate in theological circles what Jesus meant by that. There are three basic strands of what the rock was. Now, the oldest tradition, uh, the Roman Catholic tradition, the oldest denominational tradition is the Roman Catholic tradition. And they assume that when Christ said, upon this rock, that little play on words there meant he would build it upon Peter, upon a human being who had believed in him. And so, therefore, the Roman Catholics... I don't care, I love this rain. We need the rain. Therefore, the Roman Catholics... I just remembered the story. Can I tell you a joke? Can I take time to tell you a joke? I'm sorry. Nah, never mind, I won't. No, you want to know it now, don't you? You want to know it. All this stuff coming down reminds me, you know, you know, uh, all this stuff the church has been through, some real hokey stuff. I mean, there are some real P.T. Barnum personalities in the church. And preachers used to get around and talk about the different flamboyant personalities they knew. Well, I heard a preacher one time tell a joke about this guy who was always trying to dramatize what he was saying. And he would think, these far, think up these far-out things. And, uh, and so he, one day, it was, it was one Easter. It was, the, it was Easter, and this guy rigged up this whole apparatus to where, uh, at a given moment... The wall would open up and Christ would pop out of the wall. And then at another given moment, they were going to put a bird down out of the attic through the, the a dove through sent. And, and when, they, when this guy said, Lord, send the Holy Spirit, the janitor was supposed to be up in the ceiling and throw down this bird. Well, so they rig all this stuff up. And the janitor has seen going up with this bird, you know, into the attic where the church cat is. <laughs> so they get to the part of the sermon, you know, and the preacher's going away, and in his P.T. Barnum style, he says, Lord, send down the Holy Spirit. Nothing. Nothing. He waits a minute, she says, he points some more, Lord, send down the Holy Spirit. Nothing. So finally he screams real loud, Lord, send down the Holy Spirit. And the janitor sticks his head through the hole and says, The cat done it, the dove. You want me to send down the cat? <laughs> Anyhow, I don't know. Oh, I, now I remember what. I'm getting rained on here. God's sending down the rain. Anyhow, so the Roman Catholics believe that it was on men, God forbid, <laughs> that Christ would build his church. And not only do they believe that, but they believe that that Christ handed the right to a man 
for other men to succeed him, and they would be kind of the stepping stones or the stepping rocks, uh, and they would head up the church. Well, Protestants don't believe that because two things. First of all, just common sense. You know as well as I do that when you hand anything to a man and base it on a man or a woman, they're going to mess it up. All of us pervert everything we have. That's the condition of sin we live in. And so we're going to mess it up. But, but also biblically, there was no record that, Christ, that Peter ever headed the church. I mean, the head of the church of Jerusalem was James, Christ's brother. And so there was no place biblically where it said that Peter was supposed to do that. No. Um, so anyhow, we don't believe that. Here, now Protestants, the next step is that there are some people believe that the profession itself is what Christ meant by the rock. Upon your confession of who I am, upon your recognition of who I am, that is what we will build the church on. So that when people recognize me, then they are automatically in the church. Well, that's true as far as it goes. If you believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, then you are a part of the body of Christ. That's, that is an automatic. However, now watch this. If you think that the church is founded upon men's recognition, even revelatory recognition of who God is, there's just a short jump to believe that the church is founded upon accurate theology. And once you have a church that you believe is founded upon accurate theology, you're in deep weeds. You know why? Because everybody has their own accurate theology. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different denominations in the Christian family. Now, how many churches are there? One church. Upon you, I build my church. It's singular. Okay? So there's only one church as far as... Christ is concerned, but there are hundreds of denominations all built upon different theology, all believing they are more accurate than the other. Therefore, if we are going to say that by the rock, Christ really meant a profession or a theological recognition, we're still in deep weeds. We're still in trouble. The third tradition, though, is that Jesus himself is the rock. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Now, there is plenty of biblical uh, evidence for that. In 1 Corinthians 3, for example, verse 11, it says this, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So there is much in that that says that the church's foundation is not an accurate theology, not any men's philosophy, even though it may be God-given, the church's foundation is God himself in Jesus Christ. It is a connection. It's not a belief. It's a connection. It's a standing upon. And it is the ultimate connection for everyone. That Christ himself is the answer. Now, I did something real stupid last night. Saturday evening, people really get a raw end of the deal because I go there and, and make a lot of my mistakes. And last night I got going. You know, preachers get going. And, and uh, sometimes you guys shout encouragement, and I appreciate it. But sometimes you ought to say, Hunter, you're getting going here. Now watch what you say. But I started getting going, and I said, Jesus Christ is the answer to every problem you have. 
Well, now, that's the dumbest statement in the world. Jesus Christ isn't the answer to every problem you have. He is the ultimate answer to all men's quest. But he is not specifically the answer. The church, for a long time, has tried to over-theologize the world. And so we arrange questions so that the answer will be Christ. We do that in Sunday school. I heard a story once, and you probably heard this too, about this, you know, the, the teacher who was doing that. Every question, the answer was Jesus Christ, you know? And so one day she comes in, and there's this little class there, and she says, boys and girls, okay, now what has brown fur and big eyes and a long furry tail and likes to eat nuts? Silence, you know? And finally this one little boy raises his hand and he says, you know, I know the answer to all these questions is Jesus, but that sure sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> well, ultimately, the answer, the foundation of the universe is Christ. Ultimately, it is. And ultimately, that is the answer to all of our quests. But if you try to make it... Look, if you're having trouble in your marriage, guys then yes, ultimately you can go and, and get from him a love that will lay itself down and sacrifice itself for your wife. But, meanwhile, you probably ought to take her some flowers, Dodo. It wouldn't hurt, would it? It would be wonderful if we could learn specifically that Jesus doesn't have to be the specific answer he can remain the ultimate answer. However, it is very important that we learn what Jesus is and, and, and as well as what he's not. When Christ said, on you, I will build my church, he had several things in mind. Why build a church at all? First thing, he wants to make sure that our security is on God and not on Man and the gathering based on God will make sure that it is. Do you know what the middle verse in the Bible is? You start at, at the end of Revelation, last chapter, last verse. Start at the first verse of Genesis, first verse, and work your way toward the middle, verse by verse. Do you know what the middle verse is? Anybody know that? This is a great trivia question. Turn to Psalm 118. Verse 8. This is my point exactly. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Very, very important. God wants you to have three things in connection with the church. I'm just going to talk about two of them today because I was two weeks with this sermon and it got too long. First thing he wants you to have is he wants you to have personal security. I do a lot of speaking outside the church, a lot of speaking in high schools, a lot of speaking to different civic groups. You know the singular thing that I notice about people, the singular trouble I notice in their conversations is that they are insecure. There are so many people who have absolutely zero self-esteem. 
So many people who are frightened and who live in shame and frightenedness. It's just awful. God doesn't want you to have to live like that. He wants you to be secure. And that's why he phrases himself as a rock, something that is solid. It is so important. I heard a story one time about a, a sailboat that was out in the ocean. It was just a little one man, one of those little one man sailboats, and all of a sudden this storm blew up, and he got caught in it. And these waves were huge, and they kept driving him towards shore. And offshore there were these big boulders. And sure enough, these waves crashed that boat on one of those boulders. Somehow, the guy was thrown out of the boat, crawled up on that boat, and straddled that, hung on for dear life, while those waves kept coming and splashing over him. The people on shore could see it, but they were helpless to rescue him. For two, three hours, he stayed on that rock. And when the storm calmed down, they went out to him. By this time, he was shaking because he was cold, because he was weak, because he was frightened. And they got him into the boat, and as he lay there shaking... One person looked at him and said, I bet you shook the whole three hours, didn't you? And he looked up and he said, yeah, but the rock didn't. God wants us to have something so solid in our life, it never shakes. And when our life is founded upon a personal relationship with God, not a theology about God, but when God lives in our life, We can face our problems, not escape them now, face them and never have to be insecure. Because it's not in us that our confidence is. It's better to take refuge in God than in men. The second thing he wants you to have, and I'm going to end with this because I I will uh, talk about, there's two aspects to the church. One is a more feminine aspect and one's a more masculine aspect. I read a real good book this week. Um... Let me see. You just, it's, it's entitled, You Just Don't Understand. And it's a book about how differently men and women perceive and um, conduct conversation. Women are much more connectional, much more relational. Men are much more conquest-oriented, status-oriented, hierarchy-oriented. When they get in a conversation, they say, where do I rate in this? Okay, women get in a conversation and just say, "Are we connecting here?" Okay, it, it's not a big thing who's right and who's wrong. Are we connecting? You know, but men have to be right. So and so. Well, I'm going to talk more later on about that. Especially uh, Becky and I are going to do a uh, special teaching this summer about how specifically uh, um, Satan uh, about spiritual warfare in the family and about how Satan approaches men and women differently. But let me take that and just say that I want to talk about the feminine aspect, the connectional aspect of the church, because he names both of them here. When Christ said, I will build my church, what was he saying? The Greek word is uh, ekklesia. There's absolutely no hint there. Because ecclesia is a secular term. It just means gathering. The Romans used it when they gathered. Um, um, 
it, it means uh, the called out ones, but it doesn't say called out for what purpose. A lot of times in the Bible you can go way back to Hebrew, words or, uh, Hebrew roots or uh, uh, Greek roots and get the meaning of the term and, and, and get a whole sermon out of that. I've heard whole sermons preached on the concept of ecclesia. There's nothing there. I've gone back to check it. There, it's a neutral term. And so therefore, what the church is, is whatever the character of Christ in the people are. But, why did God, from the very beginning, picture his believers not as individuals, but as a group? Why did he, why did he from the very beginning, picture us as a community? Well, there are lots of reasons, but I'll give you one. Because the nature of God is connection. The nature of God is love. It's not separateness. There is no easier time to be picked off by your own temptations or by the evil one than when you're riding the Lone Ranger route. There's no, and when you are in isolation, you are a sitting duck for discouragement, for anger, for hostility, for despair. You're a sitting duck. Why? Because the nature of God is for us to be together. And that's where we learn nurturing. Now listen to the second part of that phrase. God calls us together not just to feel good, not just to pat one another on the face and say, Oh, I love you, you're great. He calls us together in order for us to learn nurturing. Our nature is sin. And therefore our nature is destruction. It does, it does not come natural for, naturally for us to nurture. It doesn't. That's a learned behavior, a reinstituted behavior from what God meant in the first place. Let me give you an example. I read a, I read a great uh, article this week in U.S. News and World Report about gorillas. Now, this, will, this is another thing to add to your trivia bank here. It does have a point, and I'll get to it eventually. I love gorillas, by the way. When, when, we, when our kids were young and we went to the zoo, I used to just love to stand and watch the gorillas, you know? Something big and powerful. Monkeys I can take or leave, but gorillas are just so big and powerful. You uh, Christian uh, counselors uh, kind of psychoanalyze that and get back to me on that, will you? <laughs> Why do I like them so much? I don't know. There's got to be a reason for that. But anyhow, this article was, a gr- was about gorilla abuse. They were, doing, they, were doing, they were doing a study. Now listen, this is serious. They are doing a study on the, one of the main issues of the 90s in America is child abuse. And so they are now doing a link, the governmental agencies are doing a link to a study they've been doing in zoos for 20 years. In the 70s, they saw as a normal part of the process, gorillas would have babies and these babies would kind of saunter over their mother looking for good stuff and the mothers would go, Bam! And the babies would roll off. And so they thought, what in the world are we going to do here? So their first inkling was, well, we'll take the mother and the baby and we'll isolate them from all the other gorillas. Because mothers are kind of grumpy and, and you know, she's not getting along too well with the other gorillas. Maybe that will lessen her stress. So they isolated the gorilla from all the other mothers. You getting this? The young mother's group would be good with this. Okay. Isolated the mother from all the other gorillas. The baby comes over again, you know. Boom! Baby rolls away. 
They then took the baby away from the mother, fed the baby so that the baby gorilla would survive. Later on, the baby gorilla grew up, had a baby of its own. Guess what happened? Same thing. Baby comes, bam! Now, they're getting kind of alarmed. Because of the import restrictions of livestock now, we can't get new gorillas in. The gorilla population is diminishing because the gorilla abuse rate is, I'm sorry, is what it said, 75% is the gorilla abuse rate. And they are not successfully training these gorillas to be good mothers. What do they do? They rethink. They put them into the cage with other female gorillas who will serve as aunts and cousins, especially female gorillas who have successfully mothered children. In two days, mothers who have been abusive to their children and seen how other mothers cuddle, how other mothers play, can now play with their children. Do you know that gorilla abuse has gone down from 75% to 2% in the 90s? Is that something? Absolutely. Yeah, it's here for the gorillas. Okay. Believe it or not, in New York, they are now patterning a social program after what they've learned in the zoos. They are sending out, not gorillas, <laughs> but people who have nurtured and successfully nurtured their children. They love, they love their kids. And they're sending them out to these single mothers. By the way, single mothers, I think you're wonderful. I don't know how you do what you do. It is mind-boggling. I mean it. I mean it. I don't know how people do it with two parents. And when you got one parent, it is unbelievable that you do what you do. But the point here is that what we need is extended family. You know, aunts and cousins and so on and so forth. The very thing that in this culture has totally broken down. Now, what's the church for? The church is to be extended family. And not just in the practical things like mothering, but also when a Christian businessman comes in and says, this guy ripped me off. He ought to be able to see another Christian businessman that can walk with him in the spirit of Christ and tell him how to handle that. How is he ever supposed to know if he doesn't see it? The church is to be the example so that people know how to nurture, so that people have hope in how to live. When my kids come home and they say, this is happening, you know, what do I do about it? How should I correct it? I say to them again and again, your job is not to correct the world. Your job is to live an example for the world. And when they see in your life a life they'd love to have, that is the best thing you can do. In my office, there's a, there's a, a, um, a plaque from the words of St. Francis of Assisi that said, Always preach Jesus, but only when necessary use words. You understand? 
The church is here to live out the life of Christ, not so that people can just hear it, but so they can see it, and so they can copy it, and so they can imitate it. Now, there are some of you who are very good at one thing and not good at another. That's why he's got us together. There are some of you who have this Christian businessman thing down, but you don't know how to love your wives. There are some of you who are great parents, but you're an airhead when it comes to operating on spiritual principles in the world. That's why God brought us together, to connect us. We need each other. We need the emotional support. We need the nurturing. We need the example. And so when God saw a believer... He didn't separate him. Never separate. Immediately put him into a visionary community where all of us would be connected and all of us would learn from one another. Now, we've got a long way to go in this church in being connected. We've made some good starts. We've got a long way to go. But if we stick with one another long enough, we will learn from each other enough that we can fill in the weak places. Because we've seen Christ in other people's lives. Would you pray with me? Lord God, as we come to this, your table, to the sacrament that you have given us to remind us of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we ask you to help us to see you as the rock, not our theological system, not our beliefs, but to see you as the rock. Lord, if anyone is here who has not yet gained a personal relationship with you, let them right now rest upon you. Let them see that you have come to them in order that they may rest in your arms and let them invite them into your, their lives. And also, for those of us who have known you personally, let us cling to you and not get distracted with this philosophy and that. But rest upon you every day. And then give us your nature so that we can give it away to other people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.